This is the Oracle Podcast, and this is where your story matters. The table is prepared for you. Wishing you Godspeed. Hey everyone, my name is Garrison Hayes. I am originally from Atlanta, Georgia, but I am a pastor in the Washington DC area. That's in the United States. I know you're a Canadian, so that's the (laughs) nation's capital. No, I know you know that. Like uh, Canadians know American geography. Um, but you, uh, Americans don't know Canadians. Yeah, either. that's fact. That's <laughs> so, yeah, that's where I am. I'm in the DC area. Awesome. Yes. So what's it been like? You're in the heart of it all. Um, clearly what's the climate been like, you know, especially in these past, I guess, let's say two months, uh, this past month, what's that been like for you? Yeah, it's been interesting. I mean, you know, this is such a politically driven area where, you know, I get to pastor a church. We have about 1200 members and um, I'm the youth and young adult pastor here. And so the vast majority of my young adults, um, almost all of my kind of middle-aged to senior members have worked in the federal government at some point or the military. And so it's a really deeply, like the the entire community is so deeply connected to what's going on, on on a federal level that it's hard to avoid those conversations. Um, but it's also interesting because when you're so close to it, you know, I think the, the like our country is like extremely polarized and people are literally fighting and friendships are breaking up over this stuff. Um, but I think because so many of these, the people that I kind of interact with in this area are deeply connected to the institutions of our democracy. Um, they just view it a little different. They kind of take a, maybe a, a longer view of American democracy and what it means to, 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 to have kind of political change. And they've been here through different administrations and that kind of thing. So it's just, it, it's a different level of the conversation. Um, I find it to be much deeper than in some of the other areas of our country. Wow. Um, being so close to where all the decisions happen, um, where um, so much uh, like controversy can happen close by. I mean, like, what was, I, I have to ask, like when what happened on Capitol Hill happened, like what was that scary for you? Was that scary for your for your members, like you guys being in the vicinity? Yeah, it's actually interesting. Um, I actually um, I was there. Uh, I was there when when they stormed the Capitol and it was so it was interesting being there because D.C., if you've ever been to D.C., there is a protest in D.C. every single day, like every single day. There's someone there protesting or trying to kind of like lobby the Congress people. Um, And and so it's kind of this constant droning of people screaming and yelling and shouting and chanting something. And so like, it's not uncommon to kind of go down and check out the different protests. Of course, this wasn't, you know, intended necessarily to be a a protest. At least it didn't, uh, it wasn't necessarily, at least it didn't seem that way when I got there. I thought it was just a group of Trump supporters uh, gathering together to maybe, I guess, protest could be the word, but there was no, normally there's like a counter protest and there were no counter protesters there. It was just Trump sports, almost like a rally. And so when I got there, 
it wasn't long after kind of walking around that someone screamed out, men, take your women home and come back with your guns so we can fight. And like these people like oh start goodness. cheering and it's crazy. Ben, it's, it's insane because it's like, oh it's like a movie, you know, it's like, what? Sounds like Lord of the Rings. Like, like literally, like, like, <laughs> like, what are we doing here? Like, I'm looking at my wife, like, maybe I need to take you home. And like, so <laughs> like we, we decide to stay, of course, and we're walking around and it's just a bunch of commotion up near the Capitol. And a bunch of people are kind of running away from the Capitol. And someone tells us, like, as they're running away, they're saying, they just stormed the Capitol. They just took the Capitol. And as word started getting around, there were those who were leaving, running in the opposite direction of the Capitol. But there were also a, a good number of people running toward the Capitol. And so to kind of get like to the heart of your question, like with my members, you know, we'd all gone out. Many of us had gone out over the summer to demonstrate after George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery were senselessly killed. And when we were out there uh, protesting, uh, you know, having our voices be heard, uh, not only were there, uh, was there a significant military presence um, but they were actively pushing us back out of areas. They would clear entire blocks um, for no reason. I mean, it was a it was a peaceful protest. I mean, all like significantly. I mean, I think the Times or someone some some organization did some data research and found out that somewhere close to 93, 97, something like that percent of the protests over the summer of 2020 were peaceful. And yet the military presence, the heavy handedness of the government's approach to those protests stood in stark comparison to what I saw at the Capitol on January 6th as an eyewitness to both. The presence, wow. it, was, it was virtually no military presence. There was virtually no organization. There were areas that were supposed to be closed off that just had like small barricades that people literally just stepped right over. Um, and so that's kind of been the main reflection for those who are kind of native to this area or live in this area. It's just like, there is just such a stark difference between the way our government, our community handles the specter of black protest or even the idea of black violence in comparison um, to confirmed plans. I mean, out in the open on Facebook, WhatsApp, you know, Instagram, Twitter plans to um, enact violence against um, our democracy. And so uh, white privilege is real. I hate to say it so bluntly, uh, but it needs to be said very, very plainly and without yeah. apology that that privilege was on full display on January 6th. So my question, Garrison, is this. This is kind of, I'm gonna have to, like, this question might sound long-winded, but just, answer how you see fit sure. um like there's facts like you're saying that people can't deny when they see it um there's reality when you open your eyes just to situations that happen publicly or in the secret once you find that stuff out that like you can't deny that there is like something lopsided or like there's an uh unequal rep like representation unequal treatment etc that happens but it still seems like people still don't see it or there's still people are able to publicly and boldly deny the reality of these things. Like what you've witnessed, like you've witnessed both sides of it and someone might still say that like, oh no, it's not like that, right? So how do you then go forward 
to waking people up, opening their eyes. Um, again, I told you I was going to ask you this, but like, how do you create an anti-racist community, especially if if it's an environment where people don't look like us? Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think I think you know we have to start by saying that if someone had the bulletproof answer to that question, <laughs> not only would they um, be extremely wealthy because they'd sell a book that like everyone would want to buy, but they'd also like win the Nobel Peace Prize. That's and right, they, right. you know, like, like we know this person's name. Um, and there are people who are certainly trying and answering this question um, in some really amazing ways uh, today. But, but if we're being honest, we don't have a 100% foolproof answer to this question. And I say that for a couple of reasons on kind of a disclaimer. And this is all kind of a disclaimer before I get to, to some solutions. There is a certain permanence to racism. Um, it, and, and this permanence to racism is not to be mistaken for despair. That statement isn't supposed to lead you to thinking like, let me just throw my hands up and give up. I think it's just kind of a clear eyed, um, plain kind of view of what we're dealing with here. I think the the more we are able to see how far the tentacles of systemic and institutionalized racism have reached and embedded themselves into Western society, whether it be America or Canada or Europe or wherever it is, like, like if we're really just like taking a spoonful of just like clear-eyed realistic medicine here, um, it's gonna be really hard to to root all of that out. And, and there is no magic yeah. wand to do so. It's gonna take yeah. work. Yeah. And I say that as a precursor so that people can hopefully hear the rest of what I'm saying with a bit more sobriety. Um, it's gonna, first of all, I, there are, I think we, we have what I would describe as kind of an epistemological crisis when it comes to racism. Epistemology is like how you know what you know. And so the crisis with racism is that those who possess the moral imperative to change think they know what's going on when they don't know what's going on. What I mean by that is that white people, the majority class, the people who hold systemic and institutional power in America and all other in many other parts of the world, um, they hold the power to change these things. They hold the ability to choose not to vote for individuals who will advance, uh, who will advance xenophobic ideas or to vote in favor of policy that disproportionately disadvantages black mothers. Like, like they, they hold that power and yet how they know what they know, what goes into their decision-making, like the, the things that help them know whether or not something is racist is truly askew. I think white people have a lot of opinions about race and haven't always done the work of reading the people that racism or listening to the people, the authors, the, the speakers, the preachers, the people that racism directly affects. Mm -hmm. And until we overcome that part, I think we're going to be in trouble. I think we have to get to a place where people in the majority class, those who have that ability, the, the high caste individuals, 
namely white people, are willing to listen, truly, truly listen to the unpopular, unsavory, uh, you know, uncomfortable perspective of those who find their backs pressed against the wall um, of racism. And, and, and that's really, really key. And I, I wanna give you a couple of names of individuals who I think could be a great starting point. Um, there's an author from, a couple of them are from here in America. Uh, I'm thinking about Michael Eric Dyson. He writes some really great things. There's a book he has called Tears We Cannot Stop. Um, there are people like Michelle Alexander who writes about the forces of mass incarceration, systemic racism. There's a movie that she was very closely, you know, associated with called 13th on mm -hmm. Netflix that talks about this. Yeah. Um, of course, Ibram Kendi wrote a history book called Stamped from the Beginning, which is really, really great. Um, I would really encourage people to read a book by Derek Bell. Um, entitled Faces at the Bottom of the Well. These are great places to start uh, in this conversation of kind of orienting yourself towards listening to the perspective of namely Black people, but we could also have a list of uh, Indigenous or, or Native American people, as well as Latin American people who have incredible, incredible, incredible perspectives mm -hmm. on ways to solve racism crises in their communities. So I, I just got to ask this. I'm sorry for like longing this one topic because I really want to uh, get to, I want to hear about you and your life. Sure. But I just, I'm just very curious about this then. How do you choose, I guess, the pace of approach? Um, one thing that I've been, I've been dealing with and that I've witnessed, you know, one the biggest thing that we have to be aware of is navigating almost like the intensity like, you know, I wish it wasn't a reality, but like we have to navigate the intensity because of the sake of people feeling uncomfortable, right? Um, how have you learned how to choose when to be more aggressive or not, et cetera? You know, is it just a case by case thing? But like, what has encouraged you in that? Yeah, um, that's, a, that's a good question. I actually don't think I have a solid like philosophy on like the pace of approach. Um, I do know that there are certain issues that are urgent and, um, you know, finding solutions to um, mass incarceration is urgent. Here, here's a very urgent issue for me. Um, voter suppression in my part of the world is an urgent concern when there are millions of people of color, Black people specifically, who have been disenfranchised and kept away from the vote. These issues are urgent and require swift action. Um, but I recognize that there are a number of things that you kind of have to play the long game on. And so what I've done, what I've decided to do is to just do everything I can to create resources, to be a resource, to have um, hopefully a depth of knowledge that allows me to teach people and kind of like uh, navigate some of these really pressing questions that people mm. are facing. Um, so I, I think that's a really good question that you asked. I don't have a solid answer to mm. it. Um, but I would encourage people to to really act with with 
urgency, uh, truly. Yeah. I mean, this is not only is this a social imperative, this is a gospel imperative. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we can't be people who believe in a Bible that calls us to go ye therefore and teach all nations and that talks about um, a message that's going to go out to every nation and kindred and tongue and people. I mean, this is a racially diverse three angels message that the Seventh-day Adventist Church particularly is given to preach. That's what we believe. And we can't truly believe that while um, also believing in racial hierarchy. Um, And that's a hard pill to swallow because a lot of us don't even know if we believe in racial hierarchy, Um, but we do. It's it's evident in a lot of the ways that we segregate ourselves. Um, It's evident in the way that we organize ourselves and it's evident in the places where we live. So um, I could go on, (laughs) Ben, but 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 I'll kind of leave it, leave it there. No, I like that a lot. We need to look at what's urgent and like we have to look at it like empathetically open our hearts to seeing what is truly urgent. And man, you said it. Like I never really, I don't reflect on what the three angels message is enough, but mm-hmm. when it's so specific about the extent of it, mm-hmm. you know, how can we really reach everybody if we're not loving everybody and finding the ways to heal everybody and making sure everyone is treated equally. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I know you're we're, we're trying to move on, but now you've gotten me started about this Adventist go thing. Ahead, go ahead, go ahead, go ahead. You know, I think that the Sabbath is a is an incredibly it's an incredible anti-racist message. Um, the Sabbath is actually the philosophical foundation, in my opinion, the the theological biblical foundation for anti-racism. Hmm. Um, anti-racism is truly at its core the belief that all people are inherently equal in value. Um, That there are no groups of people who are inferior or inherently superior than any other groups, right? And if you allow that um, to kind of frame the conversation, then the logical conclusion is that all forms of inequality in outcome, inferior outcome is the result of inferior opportunity. Because if I was given the same opportunities as you, or if you were given the same opportunities as me as a group, thinking as a group, if, if say um, Latino people were given the same opportunities as their white counterparts, they would perform at the same level because Latino people are not inherently inferior mm-hmm. in any way to their white counterparts, right? That's so right, that's, right. that's anti-racism at its core. And if you take that idea and you set it aside and then you go to the Bible, the fourth, the, the, the Sabbath commandment is an invitation to view all people as inherently equal in value. Bible says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days thou shalt labor and do all that work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. In it, you shall do no other work. I'm reading from the New King James, apparently. You nor your son, nor your daughter nor your manservant, nor your maidservant, nor your ox, nor your cattle, nor the stranger who is within your gates. For in six days, the Lord made the heaven and the earth. And it goes on, right? Well, if you if you take that idea of every all those people that were just named, it just gets more and more ridiculous as God goes on. It says that you on the Sabbath, you get to rest. Now that makes sense. It's probably speaking mainly to a male audience. These people are valued very highly in society. Then it says you and your son. Now that also kind of makes sense. Sons were valued very highly in society. It says you, your son, and your daughter. Now that's crazy. 
That's insane because daughters were not valued as highly. And yet on the Sabbath, it's saying that this man, the head of household, his son and his daughter are all valued equally. They all get equal access to rest. Mm, mm. It says your manservant, which is someone who is from a much lower caste, a much lower class than you. Your maidservant, I mean, this is a woman from a lower caste or class, which is insane, but they also get the same access to rest as you do. Mm. And it goes on to say that the, the land gets rest and animals get rest, that nature itself is deserving of rest on the Sabbath. And it goes so far, which is insane, to say that someone who is ethnically different than you, mm. that's the stranger who is within your gates. That's someone who holds a different ethnicity, a different cultural position. And not only that, they are within your gates, which means that they are not a citizen. They are not someone who has their immigration papers altogether. Mm. Like that person gets on the Sabbath, they get the same access to rest. Now, God does not call us to be people who, who, uh, who live out the Sabbath just one day a week. Yeah, that's, that's when the Sabbath is set aside. But if you read through the narrative of scripture, you find that the Sabbath is a lifestyle. The Sabbath is an invitation to be at rest at all times. By the time you get to the New Testament, Jesus is asking us to enter into rest, period, constantly, like at all times. And so this idea of anti-racism and this idea of Sabbath being a Sabbath giver, a Sabbath sharer, um, are interconnected. They are so similar on a philosophical and theological level. And for me, that's what animates my anti-racism and, and it and animates my Christianity at large. That's beautiful. No, that's actually so powerful because it's, uh, I, it, 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 one of the things that hurts me personally is when people use the Bible to cause, like to support pain, to support mm. hurt, to support mm. like uh, evil mindsets of breaking down people and make cause and separation. But I like what you did there and what you pulled out is the essence of the Bible of equality, of love, of Jesus, of God. And it's just so beautiful because that's there. And the text says that. Mm -hmm. And so, wow. Yeah. Yeah, man. Absolutely. I love, I love what you're saying. Uh, almost correcting that tendency towards using scriptures to oppress and to harm and to hurt and subjugate. Mm -hmm. It's just not in the book. That, that is not found in the book. You know what I mean? Yeah. And so, so I love that. I love what you're bringing out. I appreciate that. Um, bro, let's let's hear about Garrison Hayes, your story. Um, you know, you're a pastor now, but uh, I want to know about you. Like, when you were born, like, were you born to an SDA family? What is it that, when in your life did you intentionally choose to follow Jesus, to actually introduce, uh, invite him into your own life? So, uh, yeah, start, as, start, start us as early as possible. What was that like for you? Sure, earliest possible. Okay, I was born June twenty eighth, nineteen ninety, and we have the a, same birthday, bro. We have the same birth. We have the same birthday, my <laughs> That's dude. That's crazy. The same birth. What? I was like, wait, whoa, June twenty eighth. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great day. It's my favorite day. <laughs> oh, dude, it's literally my favorite day. 
I love that day. As a matter of fact, I love that day so much that I celebrate it every day at 6.28 a.m. and p.m. twice a day. (laughs) (laughs) I look over at the clock and it says 6.28. I'm celebrating. I just... (laughs) I'm gonna start doing that now. I like Bro, it. it's a great way to stay encouraged, man. Like it's just... <laughs> <laughs> so okay. So I was born then in Atlanta. Uh both of my parents uh were are are, are Seventh day Adventists. Uh, my dad it has been an Adventist his lo- whole life. He his parents came to the church. Um so um, but my mom came in the church just a few years before having me when she met my dad and all this stuff. And so, um, yeah, grew up Adventist. You know, it's interesting. I grew up in a in a really, honestly, conservative church. Um, and, you know, I was always really involved with church. I actually really loved church. Um and it partly because I was homeschooled. And so I was like super Adventist, right? Homeschooled. I've never had meat in my entire life. Like, you know, like strict vegetarian, vegan for seven years kind of thing. Wow. Like, like one of those. Um, and, and, and so church kind of was my life and, and my social kind of network. And so I, I, I loved it. Um, but I have to be honest with you, the legalism, the rules-based religion was always a turnoff for me. I I never felt like I could trust God. Honestly, I felt like God was somebody who was always trying to find me doing what was wrong. And so I have a younger brother. And so as an older sibling, um, you know, you have this, I, I don't know if anyone can relate to this, but like you feel this responsibility to be the good kid and to do the right things and to be the right, you know, leave the right example. Mm. And that was definitely, um, you know, informed by the place that I, at the time and the order in which I was born, but oh, so much of that leaked over into my religious life. And so by the time I left home to go off to college, um, I just was completely burned out on trying so hard. Um, you know, I'd, I'd gotten into, I was, I I knew that I wanted to be a filmmaker, uh, since I was 14 years old. And so I'm like, I'm going to go make movies, but like my extremely conservative church was like, no, you need to be a medical missionary. (laughs) Like you need to like, like, you know, be a preacher of the gospel kind of thing. And I was just really, not about that. I just, that was just not what I was interested in. I was interested in telling stories and I, and no one wanted to nurture that into me. I got into my dream school, which was the Savannah College of Art and Design, um, which is a great film school. But they told me that like that place wasn't of God and that I shouldn't wow. go and that I shouldn't even be thinking about making movies or being in quote unquote, Hollywood. Yeah, yeah exactly. To the, to the point where I, I, so I'm listening to them at, at 18 years old and I say, okay, I'm not going to do it. I won't, I won't go, um, you know, this, this community that I trust is telling me that this is not of God, that I'll lose my soul. And so I'm going to not do that. And I have to be honest with you, man, like the year that I took off from school was easily one of the worst years of my life. I was depressed and suicidal 
and I felt so directionless and I felt like I couldn't, I, I just couldn't grab a hold of anything. And someone told me that there was a film program at an Adventist school, Southern Adventist University, and that I should think about it. I should just go check it out. And I went and checked it out and it was, they were, they were Adventists. They were very different kinds of Adventists than I, you know, known, but they were Adventists and they were nice and the program looked great and they had amazing cameras. And so I decided I'm going to go do this. I'm doing this. And I also decided that I was going to do what I wanted to do for the rest of my life. And so like, I kind of turned my back on that chapter in my life and went off to college and, and I'll be honest, I didn't do it because of like God telling me to, you know, <laughs> like <laughs> I didn't do it because I thought like, oh, the Lord is leading my life, you know, like brother. And, and I, I did it um, because I just really needed to get away. And that was the way I could get away and not feel that immense sense of guilt. Yeah. And, yeah. and so I did, but you know, it's so interesting. Like we do things for so many different reasons and yet God is always at work behind the scenes, always, um, always navigating our decisions to help, you know, bring us into the place that he wants us to be in. Um, and so while I was there within the first couple of days, I ended up meeting the woman that would become my wife and I made my best friends while I was there, but I also started to get really involved with ministry on campus and student government and, and just completely fell in love with service and in the process fell in love with the God behind that service. And I was introduced to a completely new view of God, like someone who actually cared about me and actually wanted what was good for my life and wasn't just looking for me to, to be totally obedient and like finding out that, that the obedience came after the love and knowing that God loved me. And when, you know, the Bible says that it is the goodness of God that leads us to repentance. And so learning about that good, good God, that good, good father, mm -hmm. it changed my life. It just completely changed my view of God. I was able to reimagine him and fall in love with the God of the Bible and not the God of everyone's, these people's traditions that I'd been kind of enculturated to believe were, were true. Mm -hmm. um, and so that's a little bit of, uh, of the early years, man. Like that's, that's kind of how I, how I came to know God and, and grow with him ever since. Thank you for listening to the Oracle podcast so far. Just a quick message from our sponsor for this episode. Has a pandemic of COVID-19 affected your social life? Maybe your love life? Do you miss those times in line meeting a new friend at the church potluck? Well, the love potluck has got you covered. The Love Potluck is a speed dating platform for Adventist singles. The people at the Love Potluck are passionate about creating a space for singles to make connections, especially during these distant times. So no matter where you are in the world, sign up for the Love Potluck to have an opportunity to build a meaningful relationship with another person. You'll find their website in the show description of this episode. Now back to the conversation. And so this is what I'm wondering because I know that feeling, like I, I remember those days when like the legalism like struck fear in me or like mm -hmm. listening to the words of like, you know, I remember like, you know, some of the things that some of the old heads, like some of the elders might say, or some of the old deacons might say how that would affect me or sway me yep. especially when I was really young. 
it would cause fear for me to pursue things that I felt like I wanted to do, or, you know, I was always scared of being uh, quote unquote secular, you yep. know, these things. Right. Um, but do you think that like knowing how deep rooted the tradition is like, you know, knowing how deep rooted the legalism may be, is there room to introduce a God like that, a God like that we know now that we know today that encourages us into the church, into our churches, like, where's the room for that? Like, can that coexist? Yeah. Um, I don't think that they can coexist, honestly. Um, I, I have seen firsthand how damaging that theology is, how damaging like last generation theology is, or, yeah. you know, that's kind of the technical term, but like, but in layman's terms, like the belief that we have to be perfect, even if people aren't saying it, um, you know, explicitly, like, it's just like you, it's just, you, you feel it. Like I have to be perfect or the, otherwise God isn't, <laughs> he isn't pleased with me or, you know, like, like I, God won't come back until his image is perfectly represented. You know, like the, these ideas that are so, they're damaging. I actually have a friend um, who I grew up with and she got the same kind of teaching and heard the same sermons that I was hearing growing up. And she's just completely turned her back on religion and church and in some ways on God. And I'll be honest with you, I can't blame her. As a matter of fact, I'm kind of glad that mm. she did. Mm. It, it's heartbreaking that when we have conversations, I can't kind of get through and kind of convince her that like, no, God isn't like that. But I'll be honest with you, where she is, is in some ways far better than believing in that pagan God that we were taught. Wow. It's a God who needs for us to put sacrifices at the altar in order for him to be appeased and who isn't necessarily interested in our personal lives, but only interested in our outward actions. He's not interested in our hearts. He's interested in our hands and our feet. You know, like that kind of thing is just, it is paganism in many ways. Um, and so I don't think that they can coexist. That was a long way yeah. to say that. No, no. And I, I, I appreciate the answer. But then I guess what, what I, and this is what I, I'm asking myself sometimes, you mm. know, this is what I've heard other pastors ask is, like, are we preaching kind of, or are we trying to do something that just doesn't really, like, what's the point of doing something that doesn't fit, I guess, maybe in the depths of, or the, the roots of the tradition that exists in our church? You yeah. Know? Like, yeah. how do you find, like, why, like, what encourages you or like, what's the point almost if you know, if we know that like that can't coexist or like if I'm trying to talk about a loving God, the God that we're taught as kids, et cetera, that like it, it can't be in the same way. So like pretty much at the end of the day, it may feel like we're almost going against the church in a way. Yeah, I mean, I think that we are in some ways, it, it could be rightly described as going against the church, um, but it certainly isn't going against the Bible. And I mm -hmm. think as long as we are keeping that distinction in, you know, in balance, I think we'll, we'll be okay. I think I had, I, just speaking from my personal experience, I had to read scripture for myself. Honestly, I had to read Ellen White for myself. Um, and in encountering that, 
for myself, I was able to gain an appreciation for what's actually in the book. I mean, really, we have to kind of, I mean, I guess to use this word again, is this kind of epistemology. How do we know what we know? And I can know, I can think I know what I know because this is what the preacher or even maybe what my parents or my Bible teacher or somebody has told me about God. Or I can go to the primary source. Uh, I can I can read the book and and I and I honestly think that's what we need and I think we need more faithful preachers yeah. and teachers who are willing to say like let's come now let us reason to get like let's read the book for ourselves I think so many Christians don't read the book they've never read it and yet they are talking about it and they are building ideas off of this book but they've only read paraphrases. They've only heard people talk about the book, but they've never encountered the book for themselves. As a matter of fact, just last night, I um, was kind of doing chores around my my apartment, just cleaning up um, the kitchen. And I was listening to Micah. I listened from Micah, I think through Malachi, Zephaniah or Malachi, I can't remember which one. But as I'm listening to this, I'm just like, amazed that we don't talk about the prophecies in those books because like like January 6th <laughs> like America 2021 like there's so much relevant content in scriptures to help us frame and understand what's going on today Nahum talks about uh Nineveh and 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 the and kind of releases this prophecy against Nineveh because of, of what they were doing. And if you really listen to it and you're reading it and, and recognizing the signs of these times, um, it just completely, it just puts a totally different spin and understanding mm. on what's going on today. And, and I use that as an example, just to say that there's so much, so much power in the Bible that is not simply confined um, to a couple of very specific ways of interpreting or ways of understanding. I think the Bible has power um, that goes far beyond what we normally have, or at least what has been tradition, what has been traditionally used for. Yeah. So then how do we, how, like, how do we read the Bible in a way that helps us see like a loving God or to see a God that isn't legalistic, you know, like what do we have to do to kind of transform our own lens so that we can start accepting or else we will be like, I mean, I know people like exactly like the friend that you mentioned who have left or because just because it can't, they can't see that God anymore. But how do we teach the Bible in a way now to keep people from wanting to leave or to encourage them to stay? Yeah, I, I do think that we have to choose um, choose a, a lens or a definition or a way of defining and understanding God. God chooses to define himself as love. It, you know, that that's what he chooses to say about himself. Um, and even when he revealed himself to Moses, um, you know, it says the Lord, the Lord, God, merciful, gracious, showing mercy into thousands, like, like that way of understanding God as he describes himself is so important for me again speaking from my, for myself whenever i am coming to scripture i come to scripture with that as my primary lens um that this is about a god who calls himself merciful 
who actually calls himself love. Um, some people would say this exactly what I'm saying. They would say it maybe a little bit different by saying that the gospel, everything about the, the scriptures are pointing to Jesus Christ. Like he is the clearest revelation of who God is. He is the clearest revelation of scripture. And so at every scripture I come to, I'm going to compare it to what is said about Jesus in the gospels, allowing those things, allowing that revelation of God through Christ Jesus to inform my understanding of what's going on in Exodus or in Deuteronomy or in Daniel and Revelation. I think that's a, that's a starting point, and it's definitely a muscle that needs to be exercised. Um, but that's that's where that's what I was introduced to, and, and and that lens has changed my my relationship with God. Yeah, I just have a I just have a kind of a a, a last question. It just kind of came up to my mind as you're saying that. Um, what would you what do you say then to encourage people um, who do feel like uh, everyone else has like made them feel like they got to go. Like, what would you tell like that friend of yours or maybe someone that's on the verge about to like no longer be able to even see God in a loving way? What would you tell them to do first if they want to kind of get to that spot where they can start moving back towards and seeing the true Jesus that exists, the true God that exists from the Bible? Yeah. I would first of all say that I'm sorry for whatever has gone on in your life and religious community that has led you to this point. Um, it, it, church hurt is real. Um, people being fake is real. And so the natural responses to those things um, are legitimate. Um, the second thing I would say, just as a starting point, I'm a very auditory person. I love listening. I think I just mentioned that I listened to the Bible I love that. That's my way of connecting to God and connecting to scripture. Maybe you're more visual and that's okay. I would say read John. Start in John. Just read it through. Listen to it if you can. NIV is a great version of the Bible to listen. I open up the Bible app and I start at chapter one and I just press play and it comes alive. Oh my goodness, it comes alive. And John's entire purpose for writing his book is to show that God came down and made his dwelling place among us. And if that, if that image alone isn't the image of a God who loves, loves hard, I don't know what is, that he would leave the courts of heaven to come and just be around us so that we could see him more clearly, that there had been generations and generations of of barriers placed up, of lenses, of, of all kinds of fog placed up that obscured our view of God, that he says, you know what, forget it. I'm gonna come down and just dwell among you so that for all of eternity, you can see who I really am. John, that's why John writes his book. And 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 I and I love John for that. And, and I think it's a great place to start. <laughs>